2: Hey everyone, welcome to the 399th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Scott Fitzloff. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Unlow. Today
3: we've got Luke Corm and Pat Barry on the show. They've got a new movie out on Paramount Plus about the Millie Vanilli scandal, aptly titled Millie Vanilli. Yeah, it is good. We've had Luke on, this is his third time. I'm trying to think of other filmmakers we've had on as regularly as Luke carlin obviously comes to mind but
2: roxy we've had a lot of people on multiple times but i think uh jim cummings maybe
3: but it's great to have luke back uh we had him um early on i saw a, a screening of his film dealt at a film festival it was an incredible screening it was so fun i said "Oren, we got to get these guys on the show and then i think they pitched us kind of simultaneously and i was like oh i was at this screening let's let's meet up We've been pals ever since. They came back. They did a show called Action on Showtime. Luke is back to talk with Patrick, his editor, about Millie Vanelli.
2: You know what my favorite thing about Luke Corum is? Mm. Whether it's true or not, he seems to me like a real fan of the podcast.
3: Also, he has a very good knack for distilling what's interesting about a subject into a, a concise handful of sentences. Like, in talking with him, I was like, oh, I would buy this movie from you. This is great. He synthesized what's interesting and human about this story. And we talk about it a little bit. I think this movie is is about, you think you know what it's about because we have all heard the headline before, but Luke has a knack for not only telling the human side of the story and, and revealing additional parts, untold parts of the story... But also in talking to us, I realized, oh, he's very good at explaining why this film is going to be good and why it's going to be exciting and captivating, um, which I think is a lesson that other filmmakers can carry forward, because essentially what we're talking about is just pitching in a really organic
2: way. Yeah, I think that is the skill that filmmakers get. That's very important to have a successful career. and People don't talk about it that much, but it's it's pitching. Your ideas, you know,
3: when you hear pitch, you think
2: like, OK, I've
3: got a deck. And, you know, you're like, picture this scene one. This happens. And like maybe that works for some people, but it tends to work a little better when it's more organic and more natural, and more conversational, basically, but still as exciting as you want it to be.
2: And people get the longer you pitch. Thing, like, I'm sure your movie that you're working on, I'm sure you're better at pitching the core concept now than when you were writing it yeah 100 percent.
3: it kind of um synthesizes as you go you kind of get the um the core of what's interesting about it
2: right and you see what people are reacting to so it's always it's always easiest to pitch something after you've made it (laughs) but yeah it's a really fun fun chat i've been doing a lot of screenwriting recently and listening to podcasts to try to like get inspired about screenwriting and just talking about setting up characters and stuff. So maybe we'll do an episode on that. Hit us up, you know, send us a message, just shoot a pod at gmail.com or just DM us on Instagram or something at just shoot a pod and let us know if that's something interesting. And you know what? Feel free to pitch us some topics. We especially love it if there's no guest attached because we get a lot of pitches of like, oh, you should have so-and-so on. They will talk about this thing. And then we have them on and they don't say anything about that thing. So we love hearing topics that you're interested in. Let us know. And the other thing we love to hear that cha-ching sound every time uh, we get an email from Patreon telling us we have a new patron. Because it just means that this podcast is still alive, still chugging along after eight years. Uh, You can check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. Really is a place... Solely, I know we say this every week, but it really is just a place where you are saying, hey, I enjoy this. Matt and Oren are helpful in some way or hurtful in a way that I appreciate. And um, here's a dollar, here's $2, $4, $20, any any level of dollars you want to give us makes us realize that we should keep going. Patreon.com slash Just Shoot It Pod. Check it out. Let's hop into our conversation with Pat and Luke.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
2: Hey, we're back with Luke Coram, third time guest on the podcast. Hey, well done. Well done. You know, we just had uh, Ira Rosenzweig on the podcast and he's like, it was the second time. And he's like, am I allowed to come back? Like, do you ever have guests back again?
5: I'm and always like, coming back. I'm just missed I am bummed. I missed the four hundredth. episode. <laughs> so close. I was trying so to time close. it just right. No so. three.
2: Have you ever seen been to a store and seen four hundred r- written on a shelf? No. You know what they write? 3
5: Three ninety nine. Three ninety nine. Baby. And that's why
2: we save right. this for you because you are you're an everyman. Thank you. And when people Thank walk you. into uh, pavilions or Vons and Gelsons or Whole Foods, mm-hmm. nothing <laughs> below those, uh, they will think of you. Yeah.
5: And we also have Patrick on. I call him Pat Editor Extraordinaire. Oh, there we go.
2: Have you guys worked together before?
5: Yeah. So I met Pat doing uh, Action, the series for Showtime, which was the last time I was on here. But no, Pat ended up being the lead. We had six editors on that thing. It was an intense, intense uh, series and uh, turnaround. And he ended up being the lead. And then we hit it off. And I was like, you know, when I this thing with Millie Vanilli came along, I... Hit him up and he had never edited a feature, but I was like, I know you can do it. Like this, you can totally do it. And, and he um, ended in like hours of TV. Pat, you tell him, you've done everything, dude. He's done a lot.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: I've done a lot. And um, I started in like the unscripted world and I've been working in documentary a lot for the past several years. Yeah. So I met Luke on action. I think we really developed a good working relationship. And uh, it was during COVID when uh, they hit me up with this new idea that was about Millie Vanilli. Uh, which is not a band that I had heard of mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. But Pat, but Pat, you tell them about your humble Pat beginnings Hilden. of Duck it's Dynasty. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. I uh, <laughs> I started on Duck Dynasty way, way back in the day. Always. I was like one of my first editing jobs.
2: And we have a Duck Dynasty editor. On? Would you know Jody, um,
3: Jody McVeigh Schultz? Of course, I know Jody. Yeah,
5: yeah. So I actually, I was actually out to Jody. To work on action and then that's what led me to Pat. That's so funny. Jody was like, dude, like Pat's great and boom. He was one of the people that taught me that it.
3: Learning that the um the documentary world is is small uh is always inspiring to me because it seems like um kind of the best uh sector of filmmaking to be in right now in particular. But I'm curious about how this movie came to be. Millie Vanilli is kind of a story that you know, we're all of a certain age, give or take, so like we're not super I wasn't super aware of of the fine details of of this story. I remember them being superstars and I remember the scandal and that was kind of it. And they were also, I think maybe a cartoon version of them was on the Super Mario Brothers super show. And I think I've just explained everything <laughs> I remember about Millie Vanilla. Yeah. There right? you go. And
2: but they were famous, the scandal was famous that they the turned out they were lip syncing the whole Yeah. Time. Wait,
5: how old are we all here? How old are I, I turned forty one
2: Two days ago. I'm between 30 and 50.
5: I didn't know much about Millie Vanilli other than the guys that lip synced. It's this Mm -hmm. huge scandal. But there was this one episode on VH1, their famous Behind the Music Mm -hmm. series. And this was the pilot, which turned out to be aired hundreds of times and was the most famous episode. And so what happened was I was brainstorming ideas with my producing partner on this doc, Bradley Jackson, who we've worked for 10 years together. Basically what happened was, is I, I've known that they're lip sync guys and that they're talentless frauds. That's what mm-hmm. people know them for. Mm-hmm. But I came across this YouTube video where Fab is telling his story at the moth in New York city. Mm, and um, cool. at the end he sings and he has this beautiful voice. Oh, I thought, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Why would you ever agree to lip sync? And it led me down this rabbit hole of discovering that there was a producer who had, pulled off this con before with another band in Europe and that these guys didn't create the con. Someone else did. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. Like it just, it, I just went to one level to the next and I was like, well, what happened to the real singers? Why did they do this? And then, and it, what it boiled down to was like, there's a lot of stories out there where people know the headlines, but they don't know the human story behind it. And I was like, let's throw out the sensational headlines and let's talk about the humanity behind it. And then the second part is let's talk about the pop machine that sold this scam Mm -hmm. that no one wants to talk about, Mm -hmm. which happens to be Clive Davis, the most respected music executive of all time, which is why no one wanted this documentary to be made. So actually, this was like it took a long time Mm -hmm. to get this off the ground because we kept hitting wall after wall, actually.
2: Wait, so you had no Vested interest in Millie Vanilli, aside from seeing this episode you liked on, of vh Correct. Yeah, Correct.
5: I did, I yeah, I was too young to, you know, I was eight years old when the scandal happened, so. I mean,
2: at, at this point, you've made this incredible featured indie documentary, Delt, which I still love and tell people about, like, to this very day. Thanks. Um, about this blind magician who, like, wins the, the Close-Up Magic Awards and is so good. It's so into shuffling cards. He's literally shuffling cards while... Making love uh, with his wife, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and then you made a show for Showtime. But now you're kind of like in the machine, and you're kind of right. You've mm-hmm. made it in Hollywood. You have deals with TV networks. You're established
3: like, is what you're saying.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. How is it that this thread is like what you choose to pull on, or well, am I is or do you have like twenty different things that you're kind of are up in the air, and you're trying to see which one is going to hit?
5: I found that. When you make the greatest thing, most of the times it comes from your idea, mm-hmm. especially early on in your career. You know, people bring you stuff and they bring you ideas and you get pitched things. But a lot of times they want you to just be a director for hire, which is not a not a bad thing. But it's hard to find a project where you really fit not only the story, but also the company making it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And... Those two things have to be aligned to make something great. If they're not aligned, you might make something good or it might just be okay and no one ever sees it. And for me, I've always been about like how do I make something great? And how do I make it better than the last one? How do I always elevate it? And so you say better than the
2: last one. Are you talking about better than the last time this topic was covered or better than your last project?
5: Better than like my last project. So like how do I stretch myself creatively? How do I like for instance? pat being in this podcast. A big part of this is like I edited um with this other editor, but we he did a year and I did a year. It was a long process. Uh, the feature doc dealt. I didn't I knew I could edit, but like I wanted to just direct. I wanted to focus on that. And so I need, I wanted to do a project where we had more resources et cetera, but where I could find someone who was better than me at editing and that person could be the editor. I can just direct. That's how I met Pat, you know. And um and but when so on this,
2: action, you, oh, well, oh, right. On action, Pat. Yeah. Right.
5: Yeah. We met, we met on action and it was fun. It was effortless, you know, like he would do stuff and we'd just be excited about it. You know, it's just like, why you get into movies in the first place? You're just like, you know, we were the last ones at the office. It was with Boardwalk Pictures, which is a really big, you know, production company. And we'd be shutting it down to like midnight. It didn't matter because we were having fun. And when we left that project, I remember like, we were talking in the parking lot, like, man, we're going to work together again, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, this was too much fun. That makes sense on a personal level, for sure. I'm curious,
3: you, circling back a little bit, you'd mentioned the idea or the, the aspect of being a good match for the company. Elaborate on that a little bit more, because I think that's not yeah. a thing that we talk about
2: quite so much. Yeah, feel free to tell us what makes the bad match, you know.
5: I can definitely tell you that. Okay, if you're talking about documentary specifically, I can really break it down really quickly on that. There are some companies that slap things together. Mm-hmm. That it's not about making it great; it's just about Getting let's intent. get to the end. Yeah, yeah, that's it, and that will drive someone like myself nuts. Because Patrick, that mean have
2: you worked on stuff like that?
0: Yeah, uh, I've worked on those certainly more than a handful of times. Like you know, it, it's always kind of the the luck of the draw, certainly. <laughs> um, and I think you can probably have a decent idea going into it. Like you know, you don't. At least I don't take every job for the same reason. Um, And so some of them you might sort of know what you're going into. um, But, you know, as a job, it will keep you employed for a while. And then other ones, you know, are are more about what I'm really passionate in. And so certainly I've I've been there. And I'll I'll leave it at that for now, at least.
3: (laughs) What are the red flags, maybe? Like, how would you, one, recognize, oh, maybe um, their standards aren't in line with my own?
5: Well, one, I always you got to look up what they do in the past because mm-hmm. there's got to be a pattern. Very rarely you're going to find a company that like that pattern changes mm-hmm. and there's an anomaly. You know, like it's not. Don't put. Don't go into something hoping that it'll mm-hmm. be something else than what's been they've done in the past. So if that quality isn't there, or that or what you want to make is there, don't go into it unless it's a paycheck. Then you got to do it. Like I've been there too. Like you just got to take that, but make sure your expectations are aligned. I think that's something to really talk through in those pre-interviews with with these executives. Is like, you know, timelines and like size of your crew and like, you know, what's your support going to be like? And oh, how many edit weeks am I going to have? Mm-hmm, you know, that's mm-hmm. a huge one. That'll tell you right there what kind of show you're making. You Can know? you
2: tell us on um, like Millie Vanilli how many weeks you guys had to?
5: Yeah, so Millie Vanilli was a, a a project where it was my production company mm-hmm. and. MRC is a finance company. They financed it. So I pitched it to them and they financed it. And MRC does things like, this was like one of their, this is like their second documentary. They've done most things in scripted. So they did House of Cards, mm-hmm. Ozark, The Outsider, then movies like Baby Driver, like that. And my manager yeah, like hooked me up. big budget with stuff. Me, big budget stuff. But my manager hooked me up with them and they just got into nonfiction. And I was like, I pitched the executive, and he was like, great. Like, literally, it was like on a Zoom. It was like, he was like, I'll hit you back next week. And I was like, well, I'm pretty positive we just got that sold. And we did. We put a budget together. Um, so I had control. Does he, when when
2: you pitch him, do you have any idea what the budget range that they're even looking at is? Because I imagine no. there's probably, for a doc feature, the budget can be probably... Anywhere from $200,000 to like $5 million. Like I'm, I sure. am it's a no, pretty big range. No, that,
5: that then got hashed out, you know, after that. Um, I think I'm soft played a number to him on the on the pitch, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. what I was thinking. And it went up from there. But, but that's where we kind of like making sure we're on the same like wavelength. Mm-hmm. And then what I like to do with a documentary, if I control it, if it's, is normal. And I will say this, this is pretty standard. If you're making like a, as they call it premium, I don't like that word, but like if you're making like a cinematic documentary feature, normally networks give you 18 months Mm -hmm. right now, maybe, you know, 20, 22, but like that's, that's the ballpark.
2: Is that different than like a, like a making a murder or an action or something like that? Yeah.
5: Series is different. Series is completely different animal. And also you have multiple editors layered on top of each other and pack and speak to that. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a, you know, action. We did it in six months, but it was. That was not normal. Normally it, it can be like about 10 months to 12 months, you know, and okay. multiple editors. So faster know. than a feature. Yeah, they're always faster. Series, typically. Feature. Interesting. Um, Even
2: though it's way more hours of finished content.
5: Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's more of a machine, uh, multiple episodes at once. So you're not making six hours. You're making them all at the same time. <laughs> You're making six
3: features or... at once rather than one feature at once, basically. Yeah, Yeah. yeah.
5: exactly. Yeah. Um, so this one, I think Pat worked on it for a year. Is that right, Pat? I think a little over. I, I, think, I,
0: yeah, I think about 14 to 15 months is about right. Uh, certainly not like full time by mm-hmm. the end. It was, you know, kind of spot work here and there. But I would say like a solid 13 or 14 months.
3: Yeah. I, you know, I remember talking to you about this. Um, when you were on for action, Luke, it's just as a scripted guy, it's it's so mind boggling to to hear like, oh, you're in edit for a year for a year on
2: something is like it's so monumental. So walk us through that a little bit, Patrick. Like, yeah, and my I have a question just before you walk us through. Like, my assumption is that in a documentary feature, it's always there's always a moment where it's bad, <laughs> where the movie is not good mm-hmm. in the middle, and I think kind of what you were saying about companies is maybe some companies will be like, okay, Mm. it's good enough. Let's try to finish it by next month. And the companies that want to make it good are like, we know there's a good movie Mm -hmm, here. mm -hmm. Let's keep pushing through, you know? Definitely.
0: Um, Yeah, definitely. You know, I can say, so Luke mentioned, this was the first documentary that I've cut, like the first film feature film that I've cut. And we were given like, like we were very lucky to have like such a long, like, You know, we didn't have somebody breathing down our neck to like, you know, we need to see a cut. We need to give our thoughts on it. Like, you know, what have you been up to? We were really left to like do this on our own, which has not been my experience with, you know, all of these other things. We've talked about these series where you have like the more, Mm -hmm. I don't want to say like a factory style approach, but the more like, you know, you're working as a team, you're putting things together. It can be, you know, very creative in a different sense, in a more pressure filled sense you know, sort of with these extra, like the extra time that we had, it allowed us to like really explore this, but then you sort of can run into these dead ends a little bit. And I recall like, you know, we really hit the ground running. We cut a few of these early scenes that we knew we're going to be in. We knew like what they were going to be and what the drama was. And we, we, as we pushed forward to the center of the film and, you know, we can see, we know where it's headed. We know that the Grammys are coming and we know that the downfall is coming. There's all these threads in the film that you're still kind of exploring as you're, you know, basically writing this in, in real time. And we would just come into these weeks where we would just almost like at the end of the week, just basically throw out what had been done that week, um, because we just sort of realized that like this is not, you know, the way that the paid and full beat actually translated into Milli Vanilli's with Frank Farian's, you know, music might be really interesting for us for like, you know, a day or something, but wasn't really fitting into the narrative that we were trying to to tell there. And, you know, I think you can speak to this more, Luke. I remember like getting really frustrated and like just having these doubts about like, where are we going? What are we doing with this? And Luke and Bradley were just like, oh yeah, no, this is what happens in the middle. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> you just sort of get mm-hmm. lost in that sort of no man's land for a while. Then you pick it back up and, and you look back and it sure seems obvious you know from that perspective
3: i'm curious just on a logistical level when you're managing these edits like how how do you structure deadlines and like milestones of any sort right like or or is it is it much more open-ended right like if is it truly just like oh yeah we know that we're gonna hit a dead end in the the middle of the process or like you know
5: first is how long of a when's our when we have to complete the film for our finance here. sure so we start there sure <laughs> and then, then i just back up and having done it a few times now i knew like i knew like in bradley like I, I knew like i set like wrote out the schedules like this is when we should have an assembly cut mm-hmm. and then mrc would be like yeah we want to see it was either first or second assembly like we want to see that I was like all right, and they're like send me a schedule and I would just send them a schedule and they would say yay or nay if that worked for them okay fine you know so I think it was like six months was (laughs) our assembly and you know we didn't have a lot of the stuff we were still gonna film we had like you know especially when you watch the doc, you'll see there's two sides to the story. And we had like, there was a big hole that we didn't have yet. Mm -hmm. So it was more forecasting what that would be and what these people would say and how the story would go. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that, on that,
2: to that end is, so, you know, so the way you pitched it, I don't know um, if that's how you pitched it to MRC, the way you pitched it to us now, which is Millie Vanilli, actually they were talented, but there was this producer that basically did this scam with them that he, and that was what he was known for. And then huge Hollywood music labels basically made them famous and were complicit in this whole thing. So you, so you know, you're going to interview whatever you can of the Millie Vanilli people, them and their families or whatever, you know, you're going to interview this producer, anyone related to him that you can get. Um, you, you had mentioned also who are the, who are, who are the actual voices of Millie Vanilli, right? You know, you want to find the actual musicians that are, making the music. And then, you know, you want to find some of these producers and like record label people it. that are going to yeah. make them big and famous and put them on MTV and get them to the Grammys. Right. So kind of have these four pools of people. Do you, how much of the story, like, are you working out before you even talk to them? You know?
5: Well, I had a deck, you know, I had a deck to put together. We, we cut a sizzle. Um, Pat cut the sizzle that we used to sell it. Um, it was a bunch of archive. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we pulled old interviews that our main subject, um, just from like YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, We used that, the, the moth, uh, the moth one as well. The one that
0: you originally had seen.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Use that. And Pat put together a great thing and like, um, and it worked. I mean, it was, it was, but it was also like the cell of like, look, like you got to have faith where it's like, we're going to take like Amanda Knox is something I would reference where it's like, That's a story that people like, oh, yeah, I know Amanda and I. Well, do you? Or you just know the headline and you know the sensationalism. Mm -hmm. Throw that out. Like, what if you get Amanda to sit down? So like in this instance, it was like, we're going to have fab sit down. We're going to have record executives and the people who actually sang the music that were deceived themselves. We're going to have people sit down and tell you how it impacted them. Not the story you already know, but we're also going to find out twists and turns along the way, guaranteed. So it's more about the exploitation of artists in the music world, Mm -hmm. which is something that no one has done before. And that's why it's sold is because because people in the music world don't want to talk about this. Like they literally don't want to talk about it, you know? It's like when Weinstein hit people in the film world, all all this stuff came out, right? It's like in the music world, it's freaking nasty, man. Like this stuff happens all the time. People are screwed over. And in this case, someone died in Milly Vanilli, due to it, you know, and that's why people run for the hills. Spoiler
2: alert. I haven't gotten to that part yet. Yeah, I remember watching the Taylor Swift documentary, like one of the most memorable parts to me of that was like, we all knew that Taylor won the MTV, like the video awards or something. And then Kanye got on stage and was like, Beyonce was robbed. She should have won this. But, and it was all like crazy. Okay. That, you know, whatever, this is a crazy thing. And we didn't really think about it that much. But in the Taylor Swift documentary, when she's like, I was a teenager when that happened, you know, like I was winning this thing. Like my whole world was like insane. I was like, not even like my frontal cortex wasn't fully formed. And this megastar Kanye jumps up, takes the mic out of my hand and tells me that I shouldn't have won the Grammy in front of the entire world. Like, imagine how that made me feel. Mm -hmm. And it was like, it's like exactly what you're saying. Like just hearing her Point of view on this is just changes the entire way you like look at this yeah, whole it makes story. The story
5: fresh, it makes it new again. Yeah, and
2: he- so human too. Yeah, you know?
5: yeah, which is what people resonate with. You
2: know, you started telling us you were running into, like, bumping into some issues with like the the record, the music industry. Um, that be- they didn't want to make this movie. Was that before you brought it to MRC or after?
5: The whole time, even when we went to sell it, I mean, the whole way through. I mean, so why
2: do you decide to push on this when uh, you never really answered the question, but I'm assuming you had probably a a lot of projects you were kind of figuring out which one you're going to dive into next.
5: Yeah. And I I, I took some stuff, you know, just to pay the bills and stuff along the way. And, um, you know, nothing like to put on the resume, you know, that I was Can you tell us,
2: you don't have to be specific, but what kind of jobs does a documentary filmmaker take to pay the bills between like, between the passion projects.
5: I mean, episodic work, you know, and maybe at the end, of the like day, an
2: anthology sort of, series or something.
5: Yeah, yeah. Or, or of a series, you know, and like they need, yeah, they need a director for this episode and one for that episode. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then sometimes you're like, you know what? <laughs> like, I don't really want to talk about that episode because it, it wasn't my show. It was someone else's show. And mm-hmm. I'm just basically doing what they tell me to do. And it's like, it's but it's not a docu series
2: really, that you're talking about.
5: Yeah. Yeah. And it's like not your vision. So you just have to like, Go along with it, you know. Those are really awkward times, to be honest. So that was most of the stuff right there. Mm-hmm. Um, Did
2: you do any commercial stuff? Like, if someone's like, "Hey, Red Cross wants to make I've this thing," I've always wanted thing.
5: to do commercials. You know, it's really funny. Like, I know, I know you guys like do a lot of that, and I, it's funny. I, I, I've always wanted someone to call me up to do a commercial, but uh haven't had. It I mean, it's time. a
2: whole genre of commercials. It's like the yeah, docu doc, style,
5: follow doc, yeah i don't know man yeah i i guess i i guess i don't know so i've i've wanted to do that i've done a lot of consulting mm-hmm. i've done that i've done um, is that where
2: you me, watch someone's documentary and tell them how to fix it
5: that but i've also helped people get their docs off the ground mm. you know like just help them formulate it from the beginning developing so mm-hmm. done that too, do you think so.
2: those doc festivals are like valuable which ones like holly docs or i, I don't know all the like kind of. I I don't really know the doc world, but it, or do festivals play like a, a part in kind of helping establish you?
5: Oh yes, they do. They do. And then they don't, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's the same in scripted, man. It's like, if I ask you that question, how would you answer it?
2: I mean, I think, I think the common knowledge is there's like five festivals that really can Blow up your career, and then there's probably another thirty or forty that can get you meetings <laughs> you know um and then anything else is just for fun and and, and motivation and you know going to festivals is a and even amazing getting into way to one network. Of those,
5: even in getting into one of those five, it's still not gonna guarantee you anything sure,
2: oh yeah, sure
5: you know so no it's, guarantee,
2: but yeah, but you'll be on a bunch of lists you'll you'll get press, you
5: know, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I would say this. I would challenge it and say this. Look at this year's slate of what happened in our industry. Look at Sundance Film Festival, where all the big sales are supposed to happen. I'll look at. I'll tell you what happened in Docs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two films. Two films sold. Now there were two or three that were pre-sold. Yeah, yeah. Well, and
3: also, that's an interesting question. Two films sold at Sundance, but
5: how many in the six months following
4: Hmm.
5: boy that's rough that's (laughs) rough no i'll send you the article no it's i know a lot of people that made films yeah that have still not sold that film
2: that played sundance that played sundance
5: that played sundance
3: which is something you always hear in narrative and i guess you know i was teasing a little bit but like you know documentary is a different marketplace right like there's a really high demand for it um and you know uh it's agnostic of stars and things like that it's really like oh is the t- uh, Millie vanilli the the headline is the star right like um whereas you might
2: think it's strike proof in a yeah, way yeah certainly
3: yeah boy it's it's a bummer to hear that even at like the world's biggest marketplaces
5: oh no the dock market is terrible right yeah. now yeah it's it's picked back up in the last two months but I mean, it got absolutely crushed, yeah, and I mean that like i am not like overplaying that that is that is for real what happened, like
3: D- digging in on that a little bit is that like streamers are are
5: contracting across the board, right right is it just they want surefire hits yeah, they want every it's it's the i mean this is a different type of topic, but it was like everybody went from jamming with content so that we can attract attention to all of a sudden wall street flipped and it was like sure. now we got to show profitability strip everything off of it sure, don't sure. pay actors residuals free cash and then it flow went,
3: right yeah, yeah yeah
5: and with yeah. docs it went from well instead of giving little money here and here and here to smaller docs uh-uh, uh-uh let's go big headline celebrity stuff surefire hits where we don't have to hope that that works mm-hmm. we know people will watch regardless right uh, a jeffrey dollar
3: documentary for instance it's just like Boom. it's always going to crash Clickbait. yeah or what yeah. do you
2: think of doing a millie Vanilli concert film <laughs> <I> and <mean>, concert <laughs> films are big right i haven't seen the uh, ending of the doc yet so
5: yeah might watch be a the reason not to. and then ask me that yeah
3: <laughs> in between cutting the movie you didn't do a festival route Like, how did you land with Paramount Plus? What was that process like? How involved were you in the first place?
5: That was the the pivotal point, you know, like how we're going to sell this thing. And as I said a little bit ago, this was the toughest year in my lifetime for documentaries. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the sales were just wretched, (laughs) and no one saw that coming. What we did, unknowing that that was going to happen, is we had a let's call it a fine cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, more of like a rough cut fine cut type of thing i was inspired by the movie swingers if mm-hmm. anybody's seen the movie mm-hmm. swingers sure. I, I i remember do you know how they sold that movie what they did was those guys got rejected by sundance mm-hmm. swingers did and what they did was they're like screw that we're gonna screen our film during oh. sundance when all the everybody's in what place." And we're gonna put our film at a, at a theater right by and, and get everybody we can there.
3: The slam dance movie, free-
5: basically. It's yeah, the, yeah. It was pre slam dance, and it worked, right? And it did great. Well, our film wasn't even ready yet, and so, but I what I didn't want to have happen is people go to Sundance and spend whatever they got in their wallet, which is what buyers do, and then you kind of get leftovers mm-hmm. the rest of the year. That's how budgets work, right? So. We decided, uh, we meaning William Morris and MRC, we decided let's host buyer screenings in New York and L.A. the week before Sundance.
4: Wait,
2: and, and William Morris reps you or reps the movie? They rep me. Okay.
5: So we hosted it in L.A. at the WME screening room. We hosted it in New York at a screening room. Had people come out. Um, some buyers are too good for that. And so you have to actually send them a link because they're like, no, nah, I'm not. Coming to your theater, I'm watching my theater. You know, Just whatever. Then Sundance happened, and uh, two films sold, which was really bad. And we were like, "Oh boy!" What are the two Uh-oh. films that sold? Uh, Kokomo City.
2: Okay, I've heard of that.
5: And the the two films that one and, and one other film, we basically got buyers interested at Sundance and before Sundance, and let the bidding begin and we thankfully had a film that people were like in a down year they were like we need something that's going to actually work that we'll get audiences and uh and it's a good film i mean i might just understating that but like they were like okay we can make this work
2: i'm curious pat from your point of view I, i agree that it's a good film i really love it but i you know they sing girl you know it's true and i like know that song right um from growing up for someone that isn't familiar with them like i almost wonder if that's helpful as an editor to kind of Mm. create this human story and this true crime story without having to lock into that nostalgia element. Do you feel like that was part of it where you like, was Luke like, Oh, we got to keep this part in where Madonna does this like a virgin thing. And you're like, I don't know who Madonna is. Um, So let's edit that out.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I think that um, that's certainly like, you know, having not, not having really any like knowledge at all. When he said Millie Vanilli, I thought, oh, is that like Liza Minnelli or something? <laughs> like, I, I I I thought it was Marrow one lady. person. Yeah. yeah, but coming into it, just like having no knowledge of it, you know, I didn't know any of the songs. I didn't have any sort of like pre-written like history in my brain, and so I, I think you can look. You know, there's disadvantages certainly, but I think you can look at it more objectively. I th- I think that is,
4: a, you know, something yeah. that you can Fresh bring eyes. to the table. Yeah. Which
0: you know, it, it is also something in general. Just you know, in editing, like just like, um. This idea that like you're not there when it's being shot, you know, you're not on the set when it's happening, um, that one of the things that just you bring to the table is I just see the screen like I just I don't see what's like outside of the frame or I don't know how hard it was for that camera to get set up or how much you were thinking about that shot. It's just like they're all the exact same size on the screen and you know, it's how you put something together.
2: I imagine in documentaries an interview might be really hard to get and people keep brushing you off and you finally get it and it's not that good. And the director is like, we worked so hard to get this freaking interview and the editor is like, there's nothing good. Like this movie, this interview doesn't make the movie better. Like why are we don't have to use it? Usually um,
0: you at least have to show it to them.
3: Right, right. <laughs> Were there ever instances where your naivete or, or uh, lack of awareness of Milli Vanilli Did anyone ever have to say like, oh, hey, this song was a super hit. You should definitely use it here. Or, uh,
2: you know, was there ever a counterpoint How did you even get the rights for the music? Is it all fair use?
5: Ugh, no. That was probably the hardest part of making the whole thing because the villain is the guy that owns the publishing rights (laughs) to the the music. And not only that, Sony also co-owns the publishing rights, and that's Clive Davis. Mm Mm-hmm. So right. in order to make the film, we actually started making the film and we're a year into it without the music rights. Wow. wow. And our finance and, and, and that. MRC
2: was already attached. They
5: knew that they knew that oh, we were making it. Yeah. They were paying for it, but I knew were you eventually, guys making
2: like your bizarro versions <laughs> of the music.
5: <laughs> no, I just always knew eventually they were going to cave. Like they were going to be like, what? because you know what happened? You yeah, know what happened? Please. Yeah. Two weeks ago, Billboard put on the front of their website, Millie Vanilli Doc has the streaming, and I can't remember the percentage go up X percent. And you know who made that money? Mm-hmm. Sure. The producer, the, the record label, yeah. they made tons of money off this film. So that's yeah. why they did it.
2: Wait, sorry. Who made money? Like the people that gave you the music rights? Yeah. So they got because a license fee, the
3: but then also people are like, oh, yeah, Millie Vanilli, and start listening to it, it on Spotify it. or wherever. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because yeah. your movie got. Gave them a big bump of people interested in the music. Reignites, yeah. The the so it's like free, free, yeah,
5: free press marketing. I guess that's why music docs are so hot.
2: Interesting. And was that your was that part of your pitch to get the music rights?
5: No, my pitch was I'm not going to do anything like salacious or gotcha. I'm just going to tell you the story like it is, which we did.
3: Did it come down to a number or like what? What was the the tipping point in terms of getting them to sign off on it? Was it just the conversation?
5: It was a conversation. Lots of conversations. Yeah. Lots of conversations. And, and the was guy it you it on a up. zoom? It was me. I was in Germany meeting with some of his team when we would be filming. I mean it was Did
2: you wear a video. suit? <laughs> no. <laughs> you just wore a hoodie? Did you have did you put your hair in dreads or anything?
5: Like, yeah, I just wore a hoodie like a no. Yeah, yeah, it was it was freaking wild, that whole thing.
2: Delt, you literally followed this guy for mm. Years and you didn't know what was going to happen, and what happened was incredible, and you didn't know that that was going to happen. With action, you know, you set a super accelerated timeline, so you had a little bit, you know, there's sports seasons and things that you follow and like cycles, so you have kind of a start and end date, but you're really kind of mm-hmm. camera crews running around following these different people and seeing how they live their life and what they do and why they do it. And here, you know, I'm only two thirds of the way through, so it might the, the whole third act might be totally different, but. This one seems a lot more like kind of beautifully shot interviews and a lot of archival footage and really kind of telling the story, you know, like kind of the facts as they are from kind of new viewpoints that we haven't seen before. But really, it seems from a filmmaking standpoint, you're shooting these really nice interviews, like a little bit of Mm B-roll establishing. But it's not verite. Where these people are nowadays, but you're not spending three months following fab of Millie Vanilli, Right. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that shift in it? Like, is it, a, did you like purposely try to make a documentary in a different way? Or is yeah. it just like.
3: Luke, are you like, I need to coach Little League. So we need to have a very clear schedule. <laughs> or yeah. is that just the movie you sold?
5: No, it's just, it was just the movie. I, I just respond to what story grabs me. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if it's, I actually get excited if it's something I haven't done before. You know? Um so yeah this one is a lot of archive I will say near the end there's more verite and the, and there's a bit of a story I didn't know that en- that actually makes the ending so sweet of this one but um it w- I I just love a new challenge I always love how do I tell it differently but also how do you tell the story that makes that story the best story it can be you know and there was actually right. a little more verite in this film that we had to pull out cuz I love verite but I was like it just you know Pat was bumping was like ah it's not working and I was like you know less is more and like you just you know, for our, for our
2: less doc experienced listeners, what do you, what do you mean by verite when you say that?
5: Verite, like fly on the wall, like you, like the person is unaware that the camera is there. You know, it's like this last chance you documentary series about football players. You know, and like there's mm-hmm. a camera in the locker room, or whatever. Just just that beautiful. Like I've always loved verite because you feel like you're getting to see this person and and in, in a way that no one else gets to see them or a real raw reaction. I love that stuff. But I think we, I think what Pat did well and our archive producers did well, archive producers are people that literally just spend time looking at archive footage for your film. And we had an amazing archive producer is finding the, they they
2: search, like they figure out where to find it also.
5: Yeah. You go like, we just need anything on this type of subject or the day that this event happened, like the day Millie Vanilli was exposed, every newspaper article, every, you know, um, News piece. Mm-hmm. We had this incredible archive producer who did. Um, she was the lead on Pepsi. Where's my jet? Which is a series on Netflix, and and she was incredible. And but what we what Pat did so well is find the verite in the archive,
3: because mm-hmm.
5: because mm-hmm. archive can be verite too. Sure. And right. there's this one scene in the film. I'll say for those who watch it, there is this one scene in the middle, and I and I think you've already seen it. Maybe or or maybe you have. No, you haven't yet is there's a press conference where
2: is that where they start singing
5: millie yeah and millie Vanilli. these two guys have to face the press when everybody knows they lip-synced and never sang a single word on their album and it's the only time in the film where everything stops and you're in one scene for like three minutes and the way pat cut it it feels Mm -hmm. like real time Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. everyone's favorite scene because the whole thing is like a roller coaster ride and then boom, you're just sitting in Oof. this and it's really uncomfortable. It
2: puts a pit in your stomach. Right. Yeah. Cause yeah. the movie is like, it almost feels like it's these things happening to these guys, you know, like that they have yeah. very little control. And then it's like all these people put them in this very uncomfortable situation. And then they're like, okay, now you guys explain what happened.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see what you, you got to watch that. Cause Pat, when he did it, he just knocked it out of the park. And that, that's. I think there's a way to take archive and make it personal and make it your own, you know. Like, and and I think he did a brilliant job of that.
3: Thank you. Well, so so my my final question, actually, in in terms of this gear shift for you, Luke, where we're we're looking at a different mode of filmmaking, how did you approach the interview process? Right, because like if dealt being an easy example, yes, there's like sit down and on the fly interviews, but it's much more spontaneous. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like in the moment based off of the things that just happened. You're asking us to them to recap things or tell us how they feel, things like that. Whereas,
2: I mean, even, yeah, Millie Vanilli doesn't, from what I've seen so far, doesn't have a ton of on the fly interviews. It's a lot of, you know, like you, you did some things which are so smart and maybe it's like an old doc trick or something, but you basically just had like a bunch of photos of, Millie Vanilli and you handed them to Fab and you said Mm -hmm. like tell me about these photos you know and you kind of took him on this journey in time where he kind of opened up about these things right and like you can have a moment where he's just like not even saying anything but having an emotional response to a photo and it's powerful in this way where like the director can just sit back and yeah i a beer just,
3: yeah hand him a second yeah, of call it a day first no and do everything uh, but but are there other things like that like how, how did you prepare prepare for those interviews in particular because i imagine you knew you had a, a finite amount of time too right
5: yeah and also like we filmed this a lot in, in uh, germany and amsterdam so you know there's not really any going back
2: sure <laughs> so and also you're like high the entire time yeah. i'm sure <laughs> probably difficult
5: <laughs> um you know, it was it was a lot of research um pre-interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these people did not want to go on camera, so it took a lot of one-on-one conversations on WhatsApp and Zoom and whatever there. Um
2: can you just tell us just like the real idiot's guide to like a pre-interview? What is that? What is that?
5: Pre-interview is getting someone, one, making sure that you want to spend the resources to interview that person.
4: Mm-hmm. Because on, camera, on paper, someone know. might
5: have a resume. That's like, oh, they're going to be a great person to speak to this part of the story. But then you get on a Zoom and something and they're just boring as hell. And you're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Yeah,
2: we've had that on the podcast.
5: (laughs) Yeah, and you're just like, nope. You know, so that's one, are they personable? Two, are they going to service your story in a way that someone else might? So we had three record label executives, for instance, one of which was really nervous. Mm -hmm. But that was good right oh, like his hands even yeah, yeah. shake yeah yeah and yeah. i was like oh he'll be perfect right and but he was honest but also kind of like squirrely so you're like oh that'll be great another guy was like looks like he's from the sopranos and he's just like and later when you watch the film more and he just actually tells you things that no one's told you about clive and all these other people Like he just spills the beans and the other guy was like a political guy like oh nothing to see here and i was like well there you go you got mm-hmm. your three amigos you know mm-hmm. so everybody was like are they good enough to spend the money on? Because you're looking at, in a doc, half day minimum for an interview.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Two interviews in a day is normally the most you want to do. Three, unless you're doing super minimal setup, like you're going to kill yourself. So two, so that's a lot of money. You got your crew. And so how big like, is the crew? This film, our crew would be about 10 to 12. hmm So pretty good, pretty good for like a doc, like crew, you know, so you get your gaffer and, you know, all the stuff, but, um, and uh, a little bit more overseas. But anyway, so that was, that was it. And then a lot of research. And then also, how do I, on the pre-interview, walk through some things with that person, and write notes of where you strike a chord with them, Mm -hmm. so that you remember in the interview, oh, go down that, and then reserve things that you want to ask them to have their spontaneous reaction and that's just a gut thing knowing like how far to go in a pre-interview 20 minutes should be enough you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. friendly but don't blow the conversation so that when you sit down in front of them for the first first time it's like you're you know that i know you a little bit but i want to talk to you you know what i mean and you haven't like wasted it right right right
3: because you don't the goal is to keep things spontaneous you don't want that to be rehearsed you don't want them to be like oh i know what luke's trying to get me to say so i'll just say it or or avoid saying it or whatever that may be
5: right yeah and also be honest with them i mean and that's what i always say is like if someone's like hey what are you gonna ask me i'm gonna say i'm gonna ask you tough questions about xyz mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like yeah. and you want to do it or not like okay yeah and can you show me the questions ahead of time mm, maybe i'll send you some topics
3: mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And do you send topics? We should use that, yeah. Warren. I feel like sometimes yeah. people will be like, "Well, can you send us the question?" in the
5: we're like, "Well, yeah, topics is good topics. unless it's a memory that's very specific that you want them to recall. Mm-hmm. Topics is good because otherwise, you're kind of giving. You might even get in their head a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you know. And then they'll pre-plan something, which is what you no, don't want. It's the opposite.
2: Yeah. yeah. Last, last, last question. What's your philosophy and Pat? I'm interested in your Uh, response to of the director interviewer's voice being in the documentary. Cause I think so far I've heard your voice a
5: little bit. I normally don't like, I like to do that as little as possible and only when appropriate. And in this documentary it's the most you're ever going to hear my voice, but it's because I put people on the spot at times and the question was important for the Mm -hmm. reaction to make Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. That's my thought on that. Pat, you go.
0: Yeah, I think that's pretty much the same. When I'm cutting something together, I will try to avoid it. I wouldn't say at all costs. Like, I'm not going to like bend over backwards to get around it when it makes sense. But if it's in there too much, you start to take away from the actual dock itself and start to put it on the, the making of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in most cases, you want to avoid that. You know, there are exceptions, but yeah, I, I avoid it.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because... Um... I think most of the time it's included to your point before Luke of like, Oh, because people are so surprised they're not phrasing their response in a way that you could use it wholesale, that you need the context of the question in order for that to understand what they're reacting off of. When Orin asked the question, it did make me think of like Errol Morris, you, you hear his voice in this stuff all the time, but kind of to a totally different effect where it's like more of a tonal thing. You're like aware of his personality and how he's joking with the the subject or something like that.
5: Errol Morris does it great, but it's only there's only there's uh, only one Errol Morris. Morris. Yeah, yeah. And then there's yeah. Alex Gibney, who kind of is the narrator, right? I think some filmmakers, my personal opinion is, try and do as little of that as possible because I think also it's lazy in the way that you do the interview. You need to make sure that that person builds your question into the answer and know when to like coach them a little bit to do that or like let them finish and then say, hey, can you do that again? And then your editor can find a way to cleverly do it without your voice. This doc, it, it made sense only because of the, like we're putting people on the spot at times.
2: We had uh, this guest Ben Berman on who uh, made also a magic doc about the amazing Jonathan that it becomes a character in all of his own documentaries. And I think it it might be like a comedy doc thing, Um, but there is something pretty fun about Mm -hmm. that. But it's a different style of documentary filmmaking. It's fun to see you do dealt, you know, kind of these docs where you're kind of waiting for things to happen, you know, versus a doc like this, that just feels like much more, precise, I guess, like from a filmmaking standpoint. All your stuff is awesome. So thanks for coming back on. Yeah. And Patrick, all I know of you is action, Millie Vanilli and Duck Dynasty. And I think it's pretty good, pretty good record. i sure bad. there's a lot of others in between.
0: Couple. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, no, thanks for coming. Oh, I was gonna ask Matt, what looking at Patrick's uh, Zoom feed, which whatever we use uh-huh. Zencaster, looking at his video feed, how do you know he's an editor? our listeners obviously can't, can't see it because he has a couch directly behind him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A couch facing his computer yeah. behind yeah. the exactly. computer. Yeah.
3: So people like Luke can sit behind him, look over his shoulder, not too close, not, not, not breathing yeah. down your neck, but you'll yeah. see a monitor.
0: Usually it's the dog these days but Luke spent his fair share of uh, yeah,
5: time back me there. me and Ferris sat on that couch a lot. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I
2: noticed there's no coffee table there cuz you know you don't want people too comfortable. Patrick, what's the, how do we find out what you're working on next? You got an Instagram account or anything?
0: Yeah, so uh I'm on Instagram at I guess I think it's Pberry with a 3, PB3RY and I've got a you know a few things coming down um i will be taking some paternity leave i'm excited about hey, coming
3: up congrats. soon so congratulations
5: yeah thank you
3: luke you got anything uh, anything
2: else for people to keep their eyes peeled for
5: yes i do but i can't talk about them so yeah
2: can you tell us like feature or series or episodic or anything like that
5: um one is a doc feature one is a scripted thing It'd be my first full ray in descriptive.
3: Oh, oh.
5: So, uh, I'll have to.
3: Very
2: exciting! Maybe and are you come far back for n-
5: episode five hundred for that <laughs> by sure, the time yeah. it gets made? You know, and then uh... are
2: are you far enough in your career where you have like the Luke Corum camp, and you basically have everyone else do things, and you just kind of like give notes? Oh
5: yeah, it's just the lap of luxury. No, absolutely <laughs> not. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, I do
2: imagine like an Errol Morris or someone. Uh, or Warner Herzog. Like, I mean, not that they don't do a ton of work, but I imagine they have a big team that does a lot of heavy lifting. For them. And I already he said
5: did. I'm not Errol Morris. So yeah, that definitely not happening for me.
3: Do you know how er- Errol Morris makes his living, Oren? Commercials. Commercials.
5: Chipotle. Miller,
2: yeah. genuine draft commercials. Yeah. That's what
5: I'm saying, man. If someone out there wants me to do a commercial, hit me up. I am ready to make some money doing commercials. Let's go.
2: Luke Corum professional filmmaker. <laughs> do you have a website? Do documentary filmmakers have websites? I do.
5: I do have a production company uh, called Keep On Running Pictures. So keeponrunningpics.com. That's where you can find me. I'm not on social media. I am on LinkedIn.
3: There you, well, wow. Which is social media, Luke. But, uh, totally yeah. professional, man. That's how I'm keeping it these days. Keep On Running
2: Pics? How do you spell pics?
5: Like pictures, P-I-C-S.
3: Well, it gets on your <laughs> your uh, your my website, website. <laughs> do you guys have a few more minutes to hang out and endorse with us yeah absolutely unpaid endorsements. so my unpaid endorsement is the cuisinart gk digital goose neck kettle i was a stovetop cario classic kettle like the the long neck uh kettle japanese kettle for a long long time i love that kettle I really take my coffee very seriously, and it kind of it. The thermometer broke recently. I was like, okay, I'm just going to upgrade. I'm going to get one of those electric kettles that just boils things immediately. Kind of a curmudgeon about it, and it's really made my coffee significantly better.
2: It's just so much easier, right? It's not only
3: that it's easier, but also it keeps your coffee or your water. At the exact temperature you need it for as long as you want it, right? So, like, if you're doing a pour over, before I would get it to to temperature and then I would turn the heat off, and so I'd like pour my coffee, and then I'd like the the water would cool down, and I didn't think that it would make that big of a difference, and surprise, surprise, it does. If you're thinking about embracing a high tech kettle, this one's a hundred dollars, which is not nothing, but you can spend like three hundred dollars on a kettle. that seems a little silly to me. Yeah, so no, $100 is, is
2: like $50 in $2,021.
3: Yeah, yeah. So Cuisinart makes a great gooseneck kettle and you can make a really killer cup of coffee at home with that and a Chemex and you're good to go. That is my unpaid endorsement. I love coffee, you guys.
5: My unpaid endorsement, while sifting through my Amazon orders, is Shiatsu <laughs> Neck and Back Massager. This is not a throwaway. This is going to change your life. It is $49 and it is the best neck Is there massage. a brand? Okay, the brand is Neck Tech, but you spell <laughs> Neck N-E-K. Okay. And Great. then Tech is T-E-C-K. So One word? Not really interesting, Neck Tech Store. And I will tell you what, I found this by... Yeah, I'm pretty a,
2: sure that it's T-E-C-K, right? Next yeah. tech okay yeah.
5: sorry i thought you said tc guys quit interrupting my endorsement okay <laughs> no, i found it so, so that you found it it's okay yeah. so what this thing does is it like heats up and it's like this sling and you can pull it down your shoulders and it will really dig in there it heats up it has these mm. like ball things so this ac that works on a, a lot of the stuff i do and he's like always lugging stuff around he's kind of a health nut my neck, I had this really bad crick, and I looked like an idiot all day. And he was like, dude, come to my hotel room. I got this perfect thing for you. Give me this Shiatsu neck tech thing. He's like, just, just turn it on. I swear it's going to work. And he travels with it. And it's awesome. You can put it in your bag, take it with you. Life changer, man.
0: So this is probably not new to many of your listeners, but it is new to me. I would like to take this moment to give my unpaid endorsement to the original Tonga Hut in North Hollywood, which is a tiki bar that I went to this past weekend. I am a huge fan of tiki drinks. Give me something fruity. Give me something mm-hmm. like with coconut and rum. And uh, and I went there with my wife this weekend and we went to just have a couple cocktails and I was prepared to be. This is your wife that
2: you're about to go on paternity leave for. You went to have a couple cocktails. Go so on. this is
0: why when you live in Santa Monica, you can go have a couple of cocktails in North Hollywood because she was gracious enough to give us both a ride home because yes, she uh, is pregnant. And so <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> so we had a couple drinks there and it beat my very high expectations already. So it slapped. Yeah. Let's just say it's slapped.
3: Tonga Hut co-signed. Um, though, if you have a couple cocktails, you definitely need a, a designated driver too. And you're like, little oh boy,
2: yeah, absolutely. Kaplan, what you got? I've got so I've endorsed this app before. It's called Polycam. I've talked about it a lot. People, I posted a lot of things like room scans I've done in this app. It uses LiDAR on your phone. You can scan a room, export it to Blender or whatever you're. 3d package of choices, plan out your shots. You can also now I'm remodeling my bathroom. So, uh, you can yeah. scan your bathroom and figure out, you know, but so they have a new mode. I just paid for it. Cause it's like 50% off from black Friday or something. I just got an annual subscription. So I was playing with it today. I think they su- support this thing called Ga- Gaussian splatting, um, which is like the new version of nerfs, like kind of this 3d scanning thing. Does it, Pretty amazing, but I haven't really played with it much. But they have this new mode. It's called room mode. And you just take your phone. You just point it around your room. What are you shaking your head for, Matt? You don't listen to my endorsements. <laughs> did you endorse this?
3: hmm Room mode? hmm When well, did you a, endorse it's this? It's a
5: subliminal suggestion. Yeah. Um,
3: uh, Oren likes to roast me for all of the home improvements that I love to do. And uh, there was a period of time, about six months ago, where I was really heavy into it. And yes, I
2: co-sign room mode. this, off. the room mode, mm-hmm. specifically? Yep. Yep. It wasn't just polycam scanning a room? Yep. <laughs> yep, it was room mode. Wow. Shocked. Sorry. Well, yes, it's <laughs> true. It is great. It is really great. I did go, eight years ago, I used to, like, Matt would endorse a book and I'd go buy it. I had her the art of comics or whatever. And then after I did that like three times, I'm like, okay, enough with Matt's endorsements, me spending money on them. So I'm sorry if I ignore your endorsement on episode 392 of a podcast, but uh, it is pretty awesome. Room mode—you basically you point the camera at a wall, and it, it it just it just scans the room really fast instead of doing like all the textures and every shelf and every book and every monitor and every desk. You can have it just do doors, windows, and walls. Yeah, it does like a like a
3: white model, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like basically just like what's the bare bones of what your room does. Yeah. So like, oh, there's a bed here. There's a cabinet there. But like it doesn't do the um, the super detailed textured pieces. Yeah, but it's actually
2: way that. more valuable because back in the day, I used to scan the whole room, bring it into like a 3D program like Blender. And I would delete everything in the middle of the room because I'm trying to plan out how to shoot in this Space and now it kind of does. It like gives you a clean version of a space, and you can three D scan it. It's amazing.
3: Can I ask? So, say you have this white model,
2: Mm -hmm. you bring it into Blender.
3: Mm -hmm. Is there any wisdom in like taking photos of the different wall textures and things like that, and then mapping that to to the different walls, or is it worthwhile to just use whatever prepackaged textures they have in Blender?
2: I guess it depends what you're using it for. For remodeling, I don't think you really yeah, who cares? need... Yeah, if you're If it's your pre-visiting shots for something. Yeah, I guess you can... You have, even when you just do the room mode now, I don't know if they had it when you endorse it, but you can click this button and it'll put textures this oh, the cool. textures i think
5: on. y'all should have another podcast about unpaid endorsements. <laughs> <So laughs> yeah. it's people, actually a pretty good name right there yeah some
2: people tell us that it's like their favorite part of our podcast
5: <laughs> i would listen to you guys banter about that i definitely would
2: <laughs> yeah. and then well,
5: like sometimes get they're really mad at bad. the other person for when you use their you know recommendation and it doesn't go well for you and then you just keep, oh, yeah. yeah i just think look at wire cutter
3: we're coming for you i've had so
2: many unendorsements too like i bought this this thing called the bug assault it's like a salt gun you shoot flies with just like, totally doesn't work you guys it just makes a mess like
3: six years ago we've been talking about it for so long <laughs> i
2: mean it's just the biggest disappointment of my life
3: it's like a first grader worth of time <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway do you guys uh, have unpaid any questions for us.
5: endorsements <laughs> That's like a tune y'all should do like that. You know, like the unpaid endorsements. And then you guys come on and you do it. I'd listen. Keep it short. Keep it sweet.
2: I don't know if you're joking about our actual tune or if you're pitching a separate podcast. No, he's pitching just, a separate I'm totally
5: podcast. serious about yeah. both of these things because I hear it in my head playing so well. Unpaid endorsements like that. And it's like ah, and then you guys come in and you just like talk.
2: But you know that's what we do, right?
5: Yeah, but what?
2: <laughs> that is what the the segment is. But that
3: he's saying it's a standalone episode.
5: Is <laughs> a stand, and you don't have that song at the beginning. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we, yes do. we do.
2: That's why Wait, I can't like tell that? if you're joking. Yeah,
5: <laughs> it's <laughs> like you think oh you, oh my god,
2: up, but you <laughs> have it in your brain from hearing it a thousand I times do. on our podcast. I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you yeah. serious? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that my tune God. Too. That's, so,
5: that's so in my head. It's because I listened to you guys. Oh, that's yeah. really funny. And it's actually is...
2: sung by a previous
5: guest, <laughs> Charles Hunt This is getting yeah. really weird.
2: If you have any thoughts, questions, you want us to forward stuff to Luke or Pat, <laughs> email us at justshootapod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow us across all social media at justshootapod. I'm on Instagram. I'm on threads, but I, I'm quitting threads. It's turned into uh, insane anti my people place <laughs> but i'm at O'Kaplan, and
3: i'm at mr madden low across all social media this episode was edited by noah bayshore thanks noah produced by tyler small thanks tyler and you're listening to music provided by the free music archive and the artist Chizar. thanks everyone
5: unpaid endorsements.
3: dun 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 thanks everyone <laughs> goodbye